But that's th these phrases are thrown around in our culture. And it can mean that, you know, uh, we're all different, we're all unique in our own ways, and yeah, that is true. But also the same thing, what, what unites us? There was an uh, interview recently with the senior pastor of City on a Hill, and he was speaking to David Koch on Sunrise, and he was just getting absolutely slammed by Kochi, talking to, you know, Kochi was just slamming him for homophobia and for his stance against abortion and things like that. And the, the pastor was really only able to kind of repeat how much Jesus is about love and how diverse their church is. And those were kind of the two key points that he really wanted to get across. But the question is, what are we actually united around? What do we have in common? Yes, there is diversity. We can look around this room. Look at all the people around you. There is diversity. There are different genders here. There are different age brackets. There are different life stages. But we have a profound unity within the church. And that unity is around Jesus and who he is. Because there are many Jesuses out there in the world. We want to follow the Jesus of the Bible. We don't want to follow some guy's version of Jesus or some girl's version of Jesus because people can come up with all sorts of things. So the question is, what are we united around? And Peter is going to be talking about this and it's actually going to be slightly different to what you expect. It's, going to be, it's not going to be what you would first uh, think about. And so my first point that I want to share with you guys from First uh, Peter here today is a church of unity. And so let's, I'm just going to read again verse 8. Finally, all of you, that is all of the church, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And Peter, he's moving to a final address to the entire church. You know that we've been through a, a big series of Peter addressing different people in different areas. He uh, addressed the church as subjected to the state and the magistrate. He then addressed the bondservant and the slave. He addressed wives. He addressed husbands. And now he's going to make an appeal to the whole church. And so last week, I was slamming the guys. The week before that, I was slamming the women. The week before that, you know, we were all, Peter has had this uh, firm word to all of us. And now it is to all of us collectively. And in the conclusion of this absolutely essential point that Peter has been laboring over for the last few weeks, we have to be following the example of Jesus in what? He's suffering. Followed by what? His subsequent glory. This pattern that we saw, that we've been unpacking and unfurling over the last few weeks. This idea that we suffer mistreatment, we suffer discontentment, we suffer with patience, wrongs done to us, and things left unfilled. Why? Because we worship a God who took our suffering for us. We worship a God who set the example for us to walk in, knowing that our suffering was not in vain, but producing real tangible effects on the world. Peter is saying, church, listen up. Here is my final point for you. And what is it? It's our relationship with each other as a church. He first exhorts the church, all of you have unity of mind. And what is he? He's asking for us all to have the same mindset. We all have to have the same attitude, the same approach, and we have to be in complete harmony. Naturally, the question arises, well, what are we supposed to be united in? What attitude should we have? What approach should define us? And many people, I think, jump the gun here when they're reading uh, Peter here. Uh, many of the commentators, many of the pastors that I studied, they'll all jump the gun. I disagree with them. You know, I don't normally 
go out against the commentators, but I do here. They'll say something like, we must be united around the word of God. You know, this is what unites us as Christians. Amen. I agree with that. We all agree with that. The word is what unites us, but it's not what I, I don't think Peter's saying that here. I don't think he's saying that. He's not saying that that's not true. He's just not saying that's what we need to be united around. You might say we must be united around our core beliefs. As a church, we must have a statement of faith, which we hold to. Amen. We should. We shouldn't be pulling tricks on each other and have hidden doctrines here and there that people don't know about. But Peter's not talking about that either. What has been his point for the last like four, maybe four or five weeks? What has Peter's point been? Suffering. We must be united together as a church and have the same mindset about it. You might say, well, I don't know if I see that there. I think it's the word. Well, have a listen to how Paul puts it in Philippians 2. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. Sounds very similar. It sounds like Peter, doesn't it? He goes on in verse five, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You can't get higher words than that, can you? But do you notice the similarities between these two passages? In both, Jesus sets the example to the church on how we must continue to do good to those who may mistreat us. Jesus himself forgave those who crucified him. And he even took for some of them who believed their death. He swallowed the debt that they had to pay and he was obedient to the point of death. And what did he accomplish? Peter has been laboring this point. Subsequent glories. Glories come after suffering. The suffering accomplishes something. He accomplished the redemption of the world. And he has now these subsequent glories that have come in, he sits at the right hand of the Father and every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is the Lord of all. And that is our proclamation. That is our confession. And we live like that is true. A church can't accomplish much if there isn't unity around this way of life. We believe these things. We really do believe that our suffering will result in the amazing works of God. It takes faith to believe that, doesn't it? We believe that all the trials that we go through are producing a weight of glory. That God himself will honor us, that he will lift us out of the trial and let us see all that we have accomplished. We believe our suffering leads to subsequent glories. And I'm going to keep harping on that praise until you know it off by heart. And that's why Peter goes on to say, Finally, all of you must have sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. And he uses this word, sympathes, which is where we get sympathy from. And it's this feeling of pity and sorrow at the distress of another. It's commiseration. It's literally a together feeling. That's what the word literally means in Greek. And he brings up this word uh, to, to really 
hammer the point home that we must identify with each other as being united in one church. We must have sympathy for each other. We must have, he goes on to say, brotherly love, Philadelphus. This kind of love that exists only between close family members is the love that you ought to be fostering towards all the people here. He goes on to say, a tender heart. The word literally means gut feeling. And it's often applied to Jesus when he had compassion on the crowd. He felt it in his gut. It was a real compassion. It was real feelings towards people. And then he uses this phrase, humble mind. And that's really thinking of yourself less. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. And that is the mark of a truly humble person. They're not thinking about themselves. See, a lot of people think, oh, I'm humble because I think I'm like, you know, pretty lame and I'm down in the dumps and, you know, I'm commiserating and I feel bad for myself. And obviously I'm humble because look how bad I am. That's not humility. That's still self-absorption. That's still selfishness. You are still the center of everything. Humility is when you stop thinking about yourself and your concern is for others. Your concern is for your God. Your concern is for your church. And a church who is doing this, who is willing to seek the good of others, even seeking the good of their enemies who mistreat them, that will be a church that will exhibit all of these qualities that Peter's talked about. This is a church who is able to bear with the friction of living with other sinful human beings because we have the example of our suffering Savior. We can suffer with all our differences because we are united in Christ. And we're united in such a way that makes a church work together. But when we're all clamoring and harping for our own uh, sense of um, our own needs and our own wants and we want everything to go our own way, that's when you find churches starting to disintegrate. Now, just because I don't think Peter is necessarily uh, making a big point about theological doctrine here, it doesn't mean that our theology doesn't matter. Peter is assuming that we're all Christians. In fact, I would say that this presupposition undergirds what he's saying right now. He's assuming as Christians, we all believe the same things. That we all follow Jesus. That we all love his word. That we all believe his word. He isn't telling us to jettison doctrine when there's differences in doctrine. He's not telling you to, well, if you disagree with this person theologically, then don't say anything. Rather, find a way to have fruitful and honest conversations about theology. Try and find a way to do it where you maintain peace. And if someone is so adverse to any opinion that's not theirs that they can't possibly hear it, then you've got a problem. And often it's the weak brother trying to claim, well, you know, I'm the weak brother, I'm the weak sister, don't talk about that stuff. No, we don't get that excuse. We're the church of God. We love the word. We love pulling it apart. We love getting into it. You can't create unity where there is division. Rather, he is telling Christians who are already united about the gospel to be united in this way of life. And why wouldn't we do this? Like, why wouldn't you suffer with your brother and sister when they've done wrong? Why wouldn't you eagerly want to be united with them and to forgive them and to, and to absorb that wrong and not repay in kind, to not get back at them? Why don't we do it? Well, we don't like people getting away with stuff. I was chatting with Gary on Tuesday and he made that point that it bothers us greatly if someone has wronged us and we think they're getting away with it. It really does bother us. I know that's a very small example, but all the stuff that we're going through right now as a church with the whole lady that has this hall, guys, we can absorb the wrongs that are being done on us and we don't repay evil for evil. 
We don't revile when we are reviled. Of course, we want a fair go. We want people to come to justice. We want them to get their just desserts. And so we hear stuff like this from Peter and we think, well, it sounds nice, but ultimately we believe that that's the way to lose. That's how we're going to lose. We're going to suffer wrong and we're not going to do anything about it and we're going to lose. Do you believe that? Better, does your heart believe that? Because I'll confess that sometimes my heart does. That if I let people get away with it, then I've lost. What have I forgotten? I've forgotten that suffering is my path to victory. I've forgotten that suffering is my path to triumph. I've forgotten that God will vindicate. And when I take these matters into my own hand, I try to be God in the situation, what do I find? Things breaking down and things not going my way. And at least my second point, we are a church of triumph. Let's keep reading, verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. It can be tempting when we find ourselves being the re- recipient of evil, when people are doing wrong things to us, to kind of pay them back. When they insult us, insult them back. When they do something evil to us, we do it back. And a lot of Jews erroneously read the law you find in the, in, uh, the Old Testament. It comes up more often um, than not, this, this concept of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You know, if they bust your eye, well, you bust theirs. They knock a tooth out, well, you go knock their tooth out. This is sort of private vigilante justice. But we know that's not what Christ calls us to do. He says in Matthew 5, 38 to 39, he says this. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Sounds a lot like what Peter's saying, doesn't it? We forget that Peter was here on the Sermon on the Mount hearing these words. And directing the church to obey them. Now first, I just want to say that Jesus is not directing the magistrate here. He's saying, he's addressing you first and foremost as a private citizen. Don't go and pay people back. Don't go and take vengeance into your own hands. Don't be vengeful, angry, bitter people who retaliate and rage when you have been wronged. The magistrate's job is for justice and he has been set up by God. He has been given the sword. He doesn't wield the sword in in vain. He does it to punish the evil. That's his rightful position to do justice. But if you have been struck on the right cheek, either you're dealing with a left-handed man who can throw a mean left hook, or you've just been backhanded. He's not talking about getting beaten up here. He's talking about being insulted. Because that was the common thing to do when you wanted to really insult someone to their face, you give them a mean backhand with your right hand. It's a real temptation in that moment if you were insulted to your face in that way to fly into a rage. And if you do, well, the fight is on, isn't it? You're ready to go. Instead, Jesus says, don't retaliate. Rather, turn the other cheek. Jesus himself was struck on the cheek in the Sanhedrin. But he did not hit the man back, did he? Wise men will either trust justice to the magistrate, that he will judge their case and return an eye for an eye or a tooth for tooth, or ultimately they will trust God with it. 
And this is not addressing matters of self-defense. If you're being physically assaulted, you have every right to defend yourself. He's not talking about uh, if someone is coming up and punching you in the face, you've just got to keep turning your head to them. And Peter is picking up on this very thing Jesus is saying here. He's saying, don't overcome your enemies by hitting them back or insulting them with the same viciousness they insulted you with. Don't mock them in return. Don't plot their downfall in your mind, stuff we all love doing, but rather absorb it and entrust yourself to God. Repay them, not with evil, but with good. Bless them by praying to God for them. Pray that God would rescue them from error. Pray that God would reach them with the gospel. Pray that God would do good to them by looking over this sin and showing them mercy. And if you do that, you'll be like your Father in heaven. Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 5, verse 43, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Both Jesus and Peter here are telling us that if we pray for and bless those who persecute us, we will ourselves obtain a blessing. We will be like our father in heaven and he will see and he will reward us in secret. We will receive honor and recognition on the last day for what we have done. Now, I want to illustrate this with a very early Christian writing. It's called the Letter to Diognetus. We don't know who wrote it, but we know it was written roughly 130 AD. Listen to how this Christian described their predicament. He says, Christians busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, but their own lives, they go far beyond what the laws require. They love all men, and by all men are persecuted. They are unknown, and still they are condemned. They are put to death, and yet they are brought to life. They are poor, and yet they make many rich. They are completely destitute, and yet they enjoy complete abundance. They are dishonored, and in their very dishonor are glorified. They are defamed and are vindicated. They are reviled, and yet they bless. When they are affronted, they still pay due respect. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. Undergoing punishment, they rejoice because they are brought to life. They are treated by the Jews as foreigners and enemies and are hunted down by the Greeks. And all the time, those who hate them find it impossible to justify their enmity. Do you not see how they are thrown to wild animals to make them deny the Lord and how they are not vanquished? Do you not see that the more of them that are punished, the more do others increase? These things do not come from a human power. They are the mighty act of God. They are proofs of his presence. What a powerful phrase from the early church. It was their very suffering which led to triumph. We don't like to hear that, do we? We don't really want that to be us. But increasingly, it's becoming clear that that will be us. The early church were opposed by evil men. And yet in all their attempts to snuff out the church, what happened? The church grew. The church increased and was blessed because that is what God does. This is not to say that ministers of the gospel cannot rebuke sharply. It doesn't mean that they're not allowed to preach seriously against the sins of our age because that's not reviling. Nor are we treating those lost in sin with evil intentions because this is what the prophets and the apostles did. 
as an act of love to those who, due to their hard hearts, would never be reached otherwise. Jesus himself spoke harshly with those who were stubborn and arrogant and set in their ways. And often the prophets and apostles suffered dearly for challenging the culture. And it is exactly what provoked the Jewish leaders to crucify Christ. We don't revile in return, but we are clear and we call things out. And that is usually where we find ourselves falling into the most amount of trouble. But God hears us. He hears our cry and he's attentive to our needs. That's my third point, a church loved by God. Let's round off this passage, verses 10 to 12. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter is quoting Psalm 34 here, verses 12 to 16. And he's doing it to encourage the church. That's his point. That's why he's bringing this up. The kinds of things that Jesus and Peter are saying about suffering, it's not unique to the New Testament. Christians didn't come. They didn't invent this new way of life. It was always a part of God's revealed plan. He watches over us. The eyes of the Lord are always on us. His ears are open to us and he sees the affliction. Think about the affliction of the righteous. From the blood of righteous Abel, all the way through, through the prophets, through the Israelites in, the, in Egypt, affliction falls upon God's people. And yet through their affliction, God triumphs, doesn't he? It's this pattern that we see throughout all redemptive history. He sees us and he knows what we're going through. And whenever we're going through tough times, we know that we can cry out to God because that's exactly what this verse tells us, doesn't it? His ears are open. He hears us. He cares. He is involved and he's hemming us in on every side. He's not distant. He's not far away. Neither is he indifferent to what is going on. It's not like he's sitting there and he can see everything that's happening right now, but he's just like, I don't care. It doesn't bother me. No, he acts. He acts on the behalf of his people. He sees the affliction of the afflicted and he brings justice to those who seek it. He fights for the cause of the downtrodden. And yet while sin still resides in this world, we know that not all suffering will be dealt with here, but ultimately it will be dealt with at the resurrection of the dead. When the books are open and those who are found in Christ will rise to eternal glory and those who have pursued evil and rebellion to a judgment of eternal fire. It says here that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. In fact, the end of verse 16 in Psalm 34 that Peter leaves off, I just want to quote it. He says, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That's where Peter gets to. But then the verse continues, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. It's hard language, isn't it? Those who refuse to repent and turn to God, we see here, are cut off. Their memory fades away. Their role in the grand scheme of history is ultimately to be a villain in the peace. No one really thinks of themselves as the villain in the story of their life. But we belong to a greater story, the story that God is telling. God will pursue his enemies. His anger and displeasure at their treatment of his children will be found out. So be warned, if you mess with God's church, you are messing with God himself. 
It's why Jesus said to the Apostle Paul, while he's still Saul, he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my church? Why are you persecuting my bride? He says, no, you are persecuting me. Because when people wrong us, it's as if they are wronging Jesus himself. And while many people who persecute God's most holy church will find themselves falling into God's eternal judgment, always remember the Apostle Paul. Because he was there, wasn't he? He was persecuting the church. He was doing this stuff. And yet God did not bring him to judgment, but he was rescued. He was redeemed by the blood of Christ. And how did the church react to Paul? The church didn't go hunt Paul down. Paul was hunting them down. The church didn't go seek vengeance, but Paul was seeking vengeance on the church. The church never reviled Paul, but Paul was breathing all sorts of threats against the church. Instead, what did the church do? Entrusted themselves to a holy God. And their hope and their trust and their faith was not in vain, was it? Because God acted. And he brought the Apostle Paul from the church's chiefest enemies to one of its chiefest proponents, to one of its chiefest apostles. And we must always hope and believe that God would do the same for our enemies too. Never let your dismay at your treatment make you hate your enemies so much that you do not want them to get saved. Whenever you feel righteous anger towards your enemy, remember your own story, how your righteousness was won for you, Whenever you feel bitterness, remember that Christ had to drink a very bitter cup for you. When you have to suffer affliction from your enemy, remember with what stripes Christ's suffering made you free. I want to leave you from a quote from the letter I read earlier, from the letter to Diognetus. Listen to what he says. For what else could cover our sins except Christ's righteousness? In whom could we, lawless and impious as we are, be made righteous except in the Son of God alone? O sweetest exchange, O unfathomable work of God, O blessing beyond all expectation, the sinfulness of many is hidden in the righteous one, while the righteousness of the one justifies the many that are sinners. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are near and that you hear and that you see the suffering of your people and you will act on our behalf. And Father, I pray that when this suffering comes upon us, that we would stand firm, that we would not return evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Lord, that we would pray earnestly for those who are our enemies, that you would reach them in forgiveness. And Lord, if they would not turn, that they would also fall under judgment. We thank you, Lord, that you love us, that you love your holy church, and that you love this world. And your plan is for the, a plan of redemption and not condemnation. Pray, Lord, that while the sun is still up and the days are still there, that we would preach this gospel truthfully and faithfully, that we would bear with any suffering, and that we would bless those and seek their good and their welfare. We love you, Lord. We praise you for your most holy and righteous word. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.